My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Few of us can claim to be free of a fascination with secrets, and as far as secret societies are concerned, there is but one absolute truth. There are no absolutes. Secret societies change with time, with geography, and with personal inclination. However, the vast majority of fraternal orders and secret societies have two prominent features in common, secrecy and initiation. Secret societies are probably as old as anything else in human culture, and today we dive into this fascinating subject with the odd man out from the odd cast featuring odd man out, who joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to discuss all things secret societies, from the Fabian to the Bavarian Illuminati, the Freemasons, Rosicrucians, and even the Shriners. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with odd man out. We don't even want a lot of people to officially join the Fabian Society. We want people to join the liberals and the conservatives and the socialists and different groups like that, but do Fabian things while they're in these groups. Because they said their anonymity was one of their strongest powers, you know. So that's kind of where they kind of, or how they operated. They said that they should, you know, we should join all these different groups and control them from inside, which I think... In my opinion, it has happened, you know, I think that half the conservatives are probably Fabian-like, <laughs> you know. And, and nowadays, you know, we have so many people, too, that are, once you get into politics, I think a lot of people are just operating on whoever will give them the most money and the most power themselves. You know, there's so much greed. But it's a pretty amazing group because they ended up, they would put these pamphlets out. That's like they started right away putting out pamphlets of their ideas, and they got pretty popular and then they would go and have these debates in public and debate their ideas with other people and they made it a point to get to be close to people like the Rothschilds and other people who had either money or political clout and so they were you know they were very intelligent in the way they went about things and uh, they ended up writing a lot of the uh, policies for the uh, British government as far as the schools 
education and different things like that. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And today on the show, we're going to be diving into some weird, wild, and really intriguing corners of odd politics with the odd man himself. Odd Man Out joins us here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast for the first time, and it's long overdue. I'm very excited to have this gentleman on the show. And uh, yeah, without further ado, Odd Man, how are you, brother? Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Man, I'm doing great. I appreciate you having me on. I've been really looking forward to it. Agreed. I have been as well. And uh, I'm curious because I've been familiar with your work for a while. I don't remember exactly when I first heard you on a podcast, but I did hear you on whether it was Sam's podcast or somewhere else. And then from there, I started just listening to your own work. And so tell people about yourself and how you got into all this stuff. Yeah, man. I Well, I got into politics. I was in a band for about 10 years in a rock band. And oddly enough, it was called We Are the Conspiracy. So it was even before I was really into conspiracies, but I just liked the name. But, you know, I did get into politics just roughly a little bit before 9-11. Started kind of listening to talk radio. I actually started listening to Michael Savage a little bit. He came on kind of late at night. And so I just found myself flipping through the radio. You know, this is how long that, <laughs> how long ago that was. And I, well, you know, I identify with some of the things this guy's talking about, you know, I didn't know even the difference between left, right, Democrat, Republican at the time. I just knew there were certain things. He was talking about some things that are more traditional. He kind of made it sound like, well, there's kind of a war on traditionalism, you know? And I was like, well, you know, I, even though I'm in this heavy metal band, I do lean more traditional in a lot of ways. And then, you know, maybe six, eight months later, we had 9-11 happen and I became, you know, like a lot of people, really interested in politics. I just stayed, stayed glued to the TV for months and, you know, but I never really thought I'd do a podcast. I mean, I remember listening to a podcast around that time. I guess it was very early on and it was like a wrestling podcast. So, you know, never thought I would do anything like that, but I was always a big fan of talk radio after that and eventually I just started you know, putting stuff on social media and really annoying my friends and family with it. Hey, you know how that goes. And yeah, I was, I started doing Instagram a few years ago and some guy on there, which is, he's not even on there anymore. And I, I never found out his real name, but he kept sending me messages. He's like, dude, you gotta just do a podcast. Your, you know, your uh, posts are too like intricate. You, you need to, they need to be longer and you can't really do that on this form. So you need to do a podcast. And I said, nobody's going to want to hear a Southern guy talking, you know, because <laughs> you know how it is. Everybody thinks that guys with a Southern accent are idiots. And he's like, no, dude, that, that actually makes you more enduring. And what's funny is he would send me these audio messages on Instagram. And this guy had an awesome radio voice, really deep, like fantastic voice. And I was trying to tell him, you need to start a podcast I don't know. He disappeared off of Instagram. Never heard from him again, but I started podcast. I, I did like, I think it was like 15 or 20 minutes and you know, it kind of went over well. I had a few people contact me and tell me they liked it. And I just kept on doing that. And I guess that's been about three years ago now. So I've just continued to do it. I had some friends from uh, alternate current radio. They'd been doing podcasts since like 2006 or something like that. 
And they contacted me on uh, Instagram. I didn't know them, but I did listen to their show, Boiler Room. And they said, hey, man, we we would actually like to put your show on our network. And I was like, no way. <laughs> and, you know, after a few months, maybe six months or so, it happened. And uh, yeah, so here I am, man. I, I love to do, I, I kind of am all over the place, but my favorite thing really to talk about is secret societies. Um, I get into geopolitics and religion and stuff like that as well. But um, I find myself always going back to uh, secret societies and the occult and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's kind of what I do. I love it. Now, 9-11 obviously was a ground-shaking, you know, perspective-shattering event for many people. I was quite young when it happened. I'm only 28 years old now, so I was about six or so, seven years old when that happened. But how soon did you start to realize that this, these events in the world had a hidden component to them or, or were more than what they seemed? Because most people are identify as into politics, you know, they get lost in the them versus they and the red versus blue and the communists versus the capitalists and so on and so forth. When did you start to kind of dig deeper? What like kind of pierced the veil for you? You know, I'm embarrassed to say it took me a long time. It was probably around 2000, I want to say 2010 or 11. I started looking into the Tuskegee experiments and that kind of like pushed me to look at other things. And I found the uh, book by Edward Bernays, Propaganda. And that had a big influence on me because I realized that even in the 1920s, you know, the government in these corporate powers had already colluded together and studied how to control mass amounts of people through the media that they had at the time. And I found this podcast called No Agenda, which some, some people might know that show. It's still going today. I think it's, I don't know how many years they've been doing that, but it's one of the longest running ones, maybe even longer than Corbett Report. I don't know. They're real close. But anyway, yeah, it, it just, they would break down things, read declassified documents and things like that. And that was like, I really loved that because it gave you, it wasn't just somebody's opinion. Like you turn on, you know, a lot of uh, talk radio, it's just somebody's opinion and it's, you know, there's nothing really to back it up and there's really not any substance to most of it. But these guys were like showing us proof that certain things had happened, certain things that had been admitted and stuff like that. So that, really prompted me to even research more. And yeah, it's just, that's kind of how it all happened. I, I started reading. I was never into books from reading very much. Um, I stopped playing music. I, you know, um, I'd barely even pick up my guitars anymore, but uh, maybe one day I'll pick it back up. But uh, I just got interested in podcasting and researching and that's my love now. Right on. Now, when it comes to secret societies, um, there's dozens that come to mind. Are there any that you've come across that you think are kind of like off in the back corner of the secret society museum? Like maybe some lesser known secret societies that you've come across? You know, I mean, you know, there's like the OTO and the order of the golden dawn and things like that. And some people say that they're a lot more important than others who say, no, they're not important at all in the scheme of things, you know, but uh, not really. I mean, I've studied 
pretty deeply on Freemasonry and, you know, you really have to get into the esoteric Freemasonry to really learn anything, you know, and those guys are much harder, you know, their information's much harder to find. So, and it seems like almost all, I'm sure, as you know, of these secret societies are at least loosely based on Freemasonry, at least like with the way the lodges are structured and the degrees and things like that. I want to get more into Egyptian Freemasonry and things like that. But, you know, it's it's tough because it's easy to get sidetracked. You know, I've looked into the Temple of Set quite a bit. I did a few shows on Michael Aquino and that whole deal. And I don't know how influential or powerful they are. It's kind of hard to tell. Certainly Aquino had some, you know, he had a security clearance and he probably was more important than we'll ever know. But I don't know really if the Temple of Set was that important as far as politics and geopolitics. I feel like things now in the modern era are kind of moving away from the secret societies. I don't feel like they're as needed as far as people who join them to, say, work their way up in corporations or the government. Maybe locally they can still be of some use, but I feel like that the NGOs have almost replaced secret societies. There's so many of them. You know, there's hundreds and hundreds of NGOs, and it seems like that's where a lot of the policymaking is happening. But certainly, I feel like these different secret societies, just the way masonry, you know, in particular, is structured with the secrecy, I think it was almost perfect to mix that with, you know, spying and covert politics and different things like that. And I know that if not America, certainly Britain, you know, they have had a big presence as far as Freemasonry inside their government and I think in their military as well. But yeah, I just, as far as smaller secret societies, I haven't really delved into too many. I want to, but... I've mostly hit these bigger ones. Like I said, I've, I think I've done like 10 shows on Freemasonry now. So it's, it's so easy. To, there's just so many books. You know, the information is endless. When you think you've learned everything, you find out more stuff. So Right, right. Now, when it comes to Freemasonry, maybe we could t- spend a little bit of time talking about them. Because as I pointed out, uh, Skull and Bones, we're going to be talking about that today. And as you pointed out, rather, a lot of these secret societies follow a sort of Freemasonic formula, and Skull and Bones has some of the trappings of Freemasonry, and it also kind of comes in on the heel end of uh, the anti-Masonic panic, and maybe that's a big part of why Skull and Bones formed in the first place. But when it comes to Freemasonry, we're told officially it started in 1717, kind of an interesting year. Yale University, where Skull and Bones is, also was sort of first established in 1717. Founded in 1701, but they didn't have their school built until 1717. So very interesting, just a little side tangent, but when it comes to Freemasonry, is it true what they say that it goes back as far as like Hiram Abiff and the Temple of Solomon and all these sort of legends of, of you know, the Mesopotamia and whatnot? You know, it's a great question. It's kind of like the hundred dollar question or the million dollar question, because like Freemasons themselves, you know, the authors, they'll kind of pat that back and forth. And some say yes, and some say no. Some say, you know, it just started in, like you said, in 1717. So it's very hard to tell. I I kind of think that I kind of lean towards there were 
Masonic-like organizations way back in the day. And maybe, you know, because you see the three degrees when you look back at these ancient secret societies, you do see this these three levels time and time again. So I'd certainly think that there was something very similar. You know, they say that they patterned everything off the ancient mysteries. And, you know, it's kind of up in the air. I mean, I guess there's not really a set... Like the ancient mysteries can consist of a lot of different things, you know what I mean? So it's kind of hard to tell. But I think that, yeah, I tend to believe that the modern version of Freemasonry, I think it was formed before 1717, but I think that uh, maybe uh, late 1500s, early 1600s, that's my opinion. Wow. Now, what what leads you to draw that conclusion? Because I've heard, you know, a lot of things about the Rosicrucians in that time period and how they might be linked in with the Freemasons somehow. And there's others that say, well, the Rosicrucians didn't really even exist as a group at all. So, but there's, you know, there's a lot of murkiness in this area, but I'm very curious about it because in my research, you know, trying to figure out Yale and Harvard and really the Ivy League institutions and what's really going on at the onset of these schools it seems like the men who founded New Haven, where Yale eventually came about, they called themselves Freeburgers, which was a term back then. I think it had like a sort of Dutch, maybe origin. Burger, I think, is a Dutch word. But the Freeburgers, these guys, they had basically Freemasonic ideals. They were talking about, you know, this city, this town that they were creating in Freemasonic terms, like, you know, talking about creating an equal balance between the church and the schools and have like a elect class of priests to run all of it, which kind of sounds like Freemasonry, maybe less secular, but definitely <laughs> Freemason, Freemasonic and even Shakespeare, right? There's rumors that Shakespeare has some Freemasonic elements to it, although I might be off on the dating there. I don't know when Shakespeare came about out of maybe 1600s or 1700s. But what compels you to think that the Freemasons started in the 15th century? Well, just, you know, I've read official documents from the Masons. I try to go, because when I first started getting into research, you know, I'd read a lot of these conspiracy authors. There's some great ones out there, don't get me wrong. But I eventually, you know, realized that they all kind of have their own biases like we all do. And I needed to go right to the source. So I started reading a lot of old Freemasonic books, like just, and they can be really tedious to, to read sometimes, but it just seems like the majority of those older books, the guys lean towards the, the first documents, the, the first proof, you know, written proof of Freemasonic uh, lodges was, I would say, honestly, the early 1600s. I've seen a few things that, say 1500s, late 1500s, but I can't prove that. But yeah, that's kind of why I lean towards that. But certainly I believe that there were organizations that had some similarities, you know. And I, like you said about Shakespeare, I, I'm not an expert either, but I have read a book. It's been quite a while since I've read it, but it was uh, by a, a fella in the uh, early, I think it was the early 1900s. And he was, you know, he took all the different Masonic-like quotes or words out of some of the Shakespeare plays and he had quite a collection and you know a lot of these things were very Masonic and that was before a lot of the Masonic books were written and the rituals were written anyway 
So I definitely think that there is some kind of connection to Shakespeare. Also, I know that the Scottish Rite, they actually do Shakespeare type plays and actually enact Shakespeare plays in front of people to, you know, kind of in their rituals. And so I know the, also the, it's a Shriners connected group, the Royal Order of Jesters. They do the same thing. They enact these Shakespeare plays. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the Bohemian Grove, I think that they do Shakespeare plays as well. I know they do plays. They're supposed to be extremely elaborate. So isn't that interesting that you have these Masonic groups and then, of course, Skull and Bones has, you know, kind of an esoteric feel with some of their their information and some of their symbolism. And of course, Bohemian Grove too. So it's kind of wild that, and they look to Francis Bacon too. They really respect him. And of course, a lot of people think he is Shakespeare or at least one of the main authors of Shakespeare. So yeah, there is a lot to go on there. And uh, on the point of Francis Bacon, he's certainly been pinned for a lot of different, you know, allegations, maybe being Shakespeare, maybe founding uh, the new world in some way and or at least envisioning it. Right. And sort of creating this doctrine of destiny. But the theater aspect of Freemasonry always fascinated me. And it's no wonder that we have so many brilliant minds like digging through the symbolism in movies because it seems like an, a continuation of something they were doing a very long time ago. You know, theater is like an evolution of these ceremonies to the gods, which evolves into, you know, stage craft, stage magic, and then, of course, movies. And, I mean, now look what we're creating here just with the tech available to us. You know, it, it's astounding. But on the point of theaters the jesters you said the order of the jesters they put on these specifically they're like freemasons who put on these plays yes the royal order of jesters and i think you have to go through the you have to become a shriner to be a jester and they're supposed to be the kind of which and this sounds to me like the shriners too we have a, a large shrine here in in my city but you know they do the circuses and they wear the funny hats, you know, and they ride the little go-karts and all that kind of stuff. But the jesters are supposed to be known for their merriment. You know, they're like almost clown-like in their, like their little mascot. I'm blanking on what they call him, but he almost looks like a little clown, like a little person clown. Uh, But yeah, they've been in some trouble over the last few years with different things, with sex trafficking and different things like that. But yeah, they definitely... uh, do the uh, Shakespeare plays and the Shriners also, have? Uh, the well, the, the yeah, the jesters, that, which are like the uh, another level of Shriner. Uh, yeah, they ab- absolutely have. Um, wow. Yeah, it's. Um, I think that um, I'm trying to. I'm blanking on the author's name. I think she passed away, but she did a couple of books on the jesters and all the legal trouble that they'd been in. And it got her into the regular Shriners as well. And she found out that, you know, the Shriners have these hospitals, which, you know, we were always led to believe they were a great thing. And and I'd, I had a friend when I was younger and uh, it was a 4th of July party and some fireworks uh, accidentally, I guess it was like Roman candles and it hit this little girl, his niece, and she was burned pretty badly and they flew her there and, you know, there was no charge and they took care of her and everything like that, which is great. But she found out in her books that there was only like 8% of 
the money that they gather actually goes towards the hospitals. So they're, they're at least they were a very wealthy organization. And I think her name was Sandy Frost, if people want to look that up. But yeah, it's kind of interesting how that works out. Another, I just thought of another Mason-like organization, if I can remember the name. It was when we, I did some shows about the, what's the, the conspiracy, oh gosh, where it's connected to the Reagan and George H.W. Bush White House, where they were sneaking in male prostitutes, right. the Franklin scandal, right. yeah, Franklin scandal. So a lot of the higher ups in that town are in a local, it's a very Masonic like organization. And they also do these Shakespeare plays for their rituals. It's very interesting. Hmm. Now, what so, do you think the connection is with circuses and jesters and this clown imagery like why make us you know a sort of subgroup of of jesters what's the significance of that that's a great question you know i wonder if on one hand they feel like you know they can get away with more because people just think they're kind of you know we're just clowning around we're just kind of comedians you know and then in the background they're doing some things that maybe somewhat nefarious, um, you know, it well, could it, just be that it's a lot of fun to do that and not be so serious. Well, it does know. seem like the clown is like, I mean, you know, maybe a, unlike the teddy bear, a clown is both a kid's sort of character, but it's also something you see in like horror movies in a very creepy and unsettling way more often than really anything else that's associated that heavily with children. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, you yeah. see children used in horror movies just as much too, right? I mean, but it does feel like there's a double-edged sort of quality to the clown where on one hand, you're right, it is like, oh yeah, we're just fooling around, we're just clowning around. On the other hand, there's like this sinisterness to it. I mean, we recently, I don't know how familiar you are with this theory, but I recently had a gentleman on the podcast from England who, his name's Paul Stobbs, and his theory is that the clown is a sort of symbol towards, or a, or a reference towards a Nephilim, and essentially why that would be or why he thinks that is because the physical characteristics of the modern clown are very similar to ancient descriptions of the Nephilim. Pale skin, they would have been cannibals, so they would have had red around their mouths and red on their nose, right? So, and really crazy psychedelic hair and clothing, you know, I'm just it's sort wild, of, yeah. yeah, I'm just sort of spitballing based on what I learned from Paul. But when I hear about right. the Royal Order, the jesters and how, you know, and I think he mentions this in his one of his uh, videos, but it's weird, especially when you see there's some real like criminal aspects to these groups where they're associated with sex trafficking. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm sure you're familiar with the whole Jimmy S Savile case, and he was kind of like a kid's character right and right and, and yeah. he was known to go to these hospitals and do really devilish things very sick things so yeah it, it's very startling but there ha there happens to be this overlap and i don't think that's by coincidence i'm sure you would agree with me based on everything you've researched but where if you don't mind saying where what town is that these people are based out of where this sort of thing's going on what miss frost did where she did the research you know, I'm not sure what town she, I'm not sure if she actually looked into the town she lived in or how that came about. It's been a while since I read her books, but 
yeah, I'm sure if you look it up, and also if you just look up Royal Royal Order of Jesters, you'll find a lot of information, I think, on their illegal troubles. One of the things that they got caught doing, they would take these excursions where a bunch of these jesters would go over to some third world country, you know, and they would, you know, get these underage prostitutes. And it eventually got found out. And Sandy Frost was, I think, the one to break the news and so she it's really i'll tell you this though when i started first started looking into her information she had she had done a lot of articles and you could find them all over the internet now if you look you can barely find anything about her articles but you can still find a few articles on the jesters but i think it's suspect that she's i don't even know what happened to her someone said she passed away but i can't find anything about her Wow, and yeah, that definitely leads more tantalizing loose threads for maybe yourself or someone to follow up on. But yeah, it's always weird when you find that, you know, certain theories get sort of retconned from the internet or just taken out completely. Now, Mm -hmm. you mentioned Bohemian Grove, and I've heard that Skull and Bones is sort of like a elite feeder organization and they've intercepted groups like Bohemian Grove. They've infiltrated, probably a better word than intercepted. Council of Foreign Relations is another group. I'm sure there's a whole list. Bilderberg Group is another one that's listed. And this is all stuff I'm sure you've seen. Anthony Sutton wrote about it. He has these graphs sure. in his book that kind of show where Skull and Bones is connected to these other groups. But when it comes to Bohemian Grove... It's my understanding that it started off as a sort of artistic commune, maybe drama and theater were part of it on the onset. And that kind of rings true with Skull and Bones and a lot of these secret societies. I wonder what the overlap, have you sort of looked into where there might be an overlap in the art community and these secret societies and why they seem to go hand in hand? You know, I have noticed that pattern for sure. And the only thing I can think of is the ritual aspect of it all. You know, that there's something about having that ritual. And if these, a lot of these groups have certain, or at least the higher ups in these groups have similar outlooks and goals on what they want to do and how they think things should be, then I could see that being a connection there with them acting these plays out. And also, if these guys really do believe that Francis Bacon is Shakespeare, and then, you know, I believe Francis Bacon is kind of held up as the creator of the Royal College. I believe they have a big mural of him when you walk into the Royal College, and I know the Royal College is supposed to be connected to the Rosicrucians, So if they really believe that, that could be like an homage to Francis Bacon as well, you know, so that could be another connection there. Yeah, it seems like there's a upper echelon of society, whether it's in the art community, political community, really any facet of society that has these people that, you know, they're connected and they seem to have this sort of aligned agenda right and Mm -hmm. i think this is most clear in a group that you mentioned in the notes i asked you to send me and that's the the fabian society now 
maybe we can get into them a little bit because I don't know much about the Fabian Society. I know that there's a, a very influential guy named John Ruskin who is kind of like a socialist at Oxford and he inspired some of these guys like Cecil Rhodes and others to go on and become, you know, globalists who financed wars and left us with this sort of third world, second world, first world distinction on the global scale. And it sounds very much like the Hegelian sort of divide and conquer motive, right? You get the communist countries off in one group, you get the Western capitalist countries off in one group, and then everyone else is in this subgroup of like the paupers of the world, right? And the, Fab- yeah. the Fabian society, they, they kind of, that's part of their belief, right? Is that, you know, the elite are better and people who are a drag on the rest of society don't deserve to live. Yeah, they're, uh, to me, now I don't see so much of an esoteric aspect to the Fabian Society and there were a few members that, I've never seen any Freemasons, although at the time they started, I'm certain there had to be a few. They, two of the members I think Frank Podmore and I forget the other fellow, they weren't very popular members, but they were into spiritualism. And that's kind of how the Fabian Society met. These two guys met at, they were going to these spiritualists like seances and things like that. And they said, hey, let's, we want to go do these haunted houses. We want to check out some haunted houses. And so one guy had a friend who was a realtor and there was a big old castle that was up for sale. And he talked the guy into letting these guys go in at night, no electricity or anything. And they just went in with flashlights and they were ghost hunting and didn't see anything. But they came up with this idea to create this semi-secret society. Not really secret, but they said at first it'll be a society that's like Christianity without Christ, which was not really, it didn't really make a lot of sense to me because that seems like the best part of Christianity, you know. But they liked this guy, Tommy Davidson, who was this kind of a quasi-socialist philosopher. I believe he was from Scotland or Ireland, one of the two, I forget now. But he was pretty popular, I guess, in England and here as well. And so they, he had this book that he was, had written that was kind of, you know, again, quasi-socialist, philosophical, and it was called the new life. And so they started this group called the fellowship of the new life. And Davidson was a part of it. And that went on for a while, but half the people wanted to, wanted it to be kind of a spiritual type of thing. And the other half wanted it to be a political type of thing. So they kind of broke off and created the Fabian society. And Fabian was known as he was a general who had to beat Hannibal, who was one of the famous generals of the time who had was just known for destroying all other armies. But Fabian, he or Fabius, he wanted to wait until the other army was subdued or tired or whatever, and then attack. And he did, and they actually beat them. They beat Hannibal in that one, that one, only one uh, battle. So that's how they got the name. And their logo for a while was a turtle. So it was like, you know, take your time, but when we strike hard. And so their whole, that kind of like represents their whole approach to politics. 
You had the Webbs, Sydney and Beatrice Webb were the two main people that really got the Fabian Society going. And then the famous playwright, George Bernard Shaw came in. And so the three of them were always the main early on, you know, for the original Fabians, they were the main drivers. But they liked Marx. They liked a lot of things about Marx. They liked John Ruskin. Uh, I think that, I think Shaw even wrote a book about Ruskin, if I'm not mistaken. But they, instead of kind of being so bold, they said we should kind of do things kind of under the radar. And so they even were very clear about, they said, we don't even want a lot of people to officially join the Fabian Society we want people to join the liberals and the conservatives and the socialists and different groups like that, but do Fabian things while they're in these groups. Cause they said their an- anonymity was one of their strongest powers, you know? So that's kind of where they kind of, or how they operated. They said that they should, you know, we should join all these different groups and control them from inside, which I think in my opinion has happened, you know, I think that half the conservatives are probably Fabian like, (laughs) you know, and and nowadays, you know, we have so many people too, that are, once you get into politics, I think a lot of people are just operating on whoever will give them the most money and the most power themselves. You know, there's so much greed, but it's a pretty amazing group because they ended up, they would put these pamphlets out. That's like, they started right away putting out pamphlets of their ideas and they got pretty popular. And then they would go and have these debates in public and debate their ideas with other people. And they made it a point to get to be close to people like the Rothschilds and other people who had either money or political clout. And so they were, you know, they were very intelligent in the way they went about things. And uh, they ended up writing a lot of the uh, policies for the uh, British government as far as the schools education and different things like that. And, you know, they actually, they didn't create the Labor Party, but the Labor Party wasn't very old when they took it over and they've been in control of it ever since. And they were also, they started a pretty famous college there in England. It's called the London School of Economics and Social Sciences. And LSE for short, but if you want to get an idea of like who has went there, who's famous. There are famous alumni. You've got George Soros. You've got David Rockefeller. You've got Pierre Trudeau. You know, of course, maybe not his real dad, but Justin's supposed dad, you know, depending on who you talk to. I forget his first name, but Murdoch, the guy who founded Fox News, Sky News and all that. Rupert. The C- Rupert's dad, yeah, he went to the Fabian or the London School of Economics. Oh. I'm trying to think of other people. Oddly enough, Monica Lewinsky went there. Oh, RFK Jr. went there. And the, you know, they were really open about the reason they founded that was to train the future socialists to go out into the political and business world and create a socialist society, you know. So, uh, Mick Jagger, oddly enough, went to the London School of Economics. Um, yeah, I'm blanking on who else right now, but yeah, it's a very interesting organization. And if you look now at the, uh, even the Labor Party now, they're not in charge right now as far as the, the prime minister is not a, a labor candidate. He, I think he's from the Liberal Party, but 
most of the last few PMs have been from the Labor Party. They have gotten so many of their members in the British government, not just the British government, though, the uh, New Zealand government and the Australian government. Remember the the horrible lady, Jacinda, I think she was prime minister or president, I think it's of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, I think. She was the one that was like implementing these horrible lockdowns. And, you know, you can see her on TV. She was just it's very hateable. Well, she's a Fabian in from the Labor Party. She was just replaced. I think she was just given a knighthood and her replacement was a fa- is a Fabian. So these people are still in, have a lot of power and they've just, you don't hear about them anymore. I think they, because they just say we're a debate club, you know, we just kind of like come up with these ideas and that's nothing more. But I think they're still pretty influential. Yeah. Wow. Now, as we sort of go through the uh, Rolodex of secret societies, it's interesting, you know, we've talked about a few different varieties at this point in the conversation, but what I've come to focus on over the past few years, really diving into this through this podcast is it seems like these secret societies are not a allied front. I mean, they definitely work in concert in some degree to some degree in in certain areas and certainly during certain time periods, but more often than not, it seems like they're at odds with one another, or maybe the conflicts that we see on the global stage have a sort of exoteric and then an esoteric side of them. Right. So Maybe we can get into that a little bit. Like when it comes to Skull and Bones, one of my big thoughts on that was it seems like Yale University was sort of an Anglo establishment within the United States. Like they had a, a some a, maybe like a uh, hidden allegiance towards England. They were slightly loyalist. And one evidence of that potentially is the fact that during the you know, big battle that was going on during the Revolutionary War. These troops were marching towards Boston. And as they came to New Haven, instead of like destroying it, they looked at the city and thought, oh, this is such a beautiful place. It'd be a shame to destroy and moved on, which doesn't seem like something a warring general who had just wreaked havoc in the two towns next to it would say, unless there was some sort of political goal in mind there. And you see gentlemen like Benedict Arnold, who's one of, you know, famously a traitor to the United States and the Revolutionary War come out of New Haven. We also have Nathan Hale, the first martyr in that sense of like espionage and, you know, one of the nation's first spies. He also is from New Haven and went to Yale. So it's interesting. I've always wondered, like, maybe Skull and Bones is this sort of German, you know, as we've uh, researchers have dug up, it seems like it's a German organization. Maybe there's something to that. Maybe, the, you know, as we know, World War One, you know, Germany obviously was the sort of target and, you know, Skull and Bones was at least 100 or more years ahead of that. So I wonder what, you know, preempted that and like where this sort of German secret society would then turn on Germany, right? I mean, Germany, I don't know that it existed when Skull and Bones was founded. I don't know if it was a country yet or if it was still like all those different sort of protectorate states or whatever they called them. 
But yeah, on that note, what are your thoughts on maybe not Skull and Bones, but just like the factionality of these groups and how they war with each other? Yeah, that is a very interesting thing. You try to figure out exactly what's going on with that. And yeah, I think that maybe you know, it could just be old-fashioned rivalry kind of between some of these guys. And like you said, it could be because you you know you read with Manly P. Hall or different esoteric writers that there is these upper levels of, say, masonry, for instance, and only, you know, the elite, the certain people will ever find out about them, you know. So there could it could be that there's more unity at the top of these, you know, elite groups. And the bickering is mostly between the, you know, the kind of lower level initiates. But it is very interesting. And you see, like, you mentioned the, you know, the Revolutionary War. You know, you see, like, these Civil War photos of... You see the guys on the left and the right, or, or not left or right, but, you know, the north or the south, and they have their hands in their jackets, you know, like half their hand, the hidden hand symbol, you know. And you read time and time again that these guys are Masons, and they're like, so you have Freemasons on the, in the north and Freemasons in the south fighting each other, and it just seems like such a strange thing to me. I, I feel like there's a lot we're not being told for some reason, you know? Right. So maybe some things we'll never know, but yeah, it's hard to figure out exactly what's going on. I know I've talked to people, you know, who've been in different, like been Masons and in, in different things like that. And they tell me that they're like, the OTO will have meetings in Freemason, you know, Masonic lodges and the Golden Dawn will do the same thing sometimes. So that's kind of interesting too, because you think like, okay, you, you would think the, you know, sometimes you hear these organizations don't like each other. You'll read a, you know, a quote from a guy from the OTO making fun of, you know, Freemasons or different things like that. So it's kind of hard to figure out. Yeah, it definitely seems like they're subterfuge and even like thumbing their nose maybe as a, a point of misdirection, right? Like making fun of Freemasons as to throw the suspicion elsewhere or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And you often see like Jews being scapegoated time and time again. And now it seems like the Freemasons have that same role. But as you, you said, Manly P. Hall and other researchers have pointed out that you really have a big distinction between the upper levels of Masons and the lower levels of Masons. I've had some Masons on this podcast, none of them in those upper levels, I assume, but yeah. it's hard to tell because, you know, they themselves, if they're being fooled, how would they know it? And if they did know it, they probably would be pretty embarrassed to admit it. And I'm sure upset uh, <laughs> to have spent all that time and realize that they're not going to get that carrot on a stick or get into that, you know, club on the hill. Right. I mean, it seems like right. that's kind of how Skull and Bones operates at Yale, where it's one of these sought after things when you're at Yale to be tapped into one of the secret societies. There's more than just Skull and Bones. There's seven other, you know, sort of, what's the word I'm looking for, ranking or senior, like they've been there longest. And then there's like mm. tons of smaller secret societies that are just kind of like a flash in the pan. But the ancient eight, as they're called, you know, they're sought after. People will, you know, really like take it seriously and, you know, be really hard on themselves if they don't make it into one of these groups because they know how it could change their life in this really beneficial way. 
but it seems like they're selective. You know, they don't mm-hmm. want just anybody to join these groups. They want to pick very specific people. What do you think is the engine behind that? Obviously, they want to have some sort of uh, curation of, of who's going to help them and whatnot. But do you think there's a, like a racial motivation or maybe a, a sort of religious motivation behind it? Or are these secret societies just all about power and efficiency? You know, I kind of tend to believe it's the latter. I kind of feel like, this is just my opinion, but I kind of feel like that they are looking for people they know will kind of go in the direction they want them to go and that they are driven. You know, there's a certain type of person, and I'm sure it... I wonder, too, sometimes if they haven't been looking at the people that they pick for several years, you know, and kind of following them and kind of looking at how they're living their lives and conducting themselves. But, yeah, I kind of feel like it's that. It's they kind of watch them and they're like, this is the type of person that's going to, you know, kind of do what we want them to do. And it seems like, you know, that they really take care of each other. You're basically set for life, you know, if you become one of these elites, you can always get a great job. You can probably get a good position in government. And that's basically what these people want anyway. So, I mean, and, you know, and then there could be more to it than that. But as far as I can tell, that's what I suspect. Now, when it comes to, you know, skull and bones, given what I said about them being kind of German, have you found any connections between Skull and Bones and the Illuminati? Because, you know, the historical Illuminati, maybe not the same as, you know, what we see on social media, people saying celebrities are the Illuminati and whatnot. But the Adam Weissop Illuminati is also from Germany and also from this sort of group of university intellectuals, people who are somewhat... I guess, religious oriented, but also very politically oriented. What do you think about the Illuminati and Skull and Bones? Is there any connection there? We know that they do have like, there's one of their similar, I think it's just the thing that they have to repeat in their ritual. It's very similar to one of the Illuminati rituals. I think it's almost word for word. And, you know, supposedly, I think in the, I'm not sure if it's in uh, Sutton's book or the the book about the Illuminati by Terry, it's called The Perfectibilists, Terry Mellinson. But he says that someone went in there and supposedly there's a picture of this picture of a German secret society on the wall there in the uh, tomb of Skull and Bones. But other than that, I will say the similarity that I did notice as far as their objectives is infiltrating education because that was one of the huge things for the Bavarian Illuminati. You know, they were very uh, clear about that. And we look at uh, higher ed and, uh, you know, you look at the, uh, the skull and bones and I mean, they infiltrated higher ed and became deans and, and professors of so many colleges. I know Sutton has a, a huge list of those in his book Yeah, that's the only thing. And that kind of leads me also to what we were talking about before, the Fabian Society. That was one of their main goals was infiltrate education. And in Mason's book about the Illuminati, he kind of tends to lean towards they split up, but they went on to form all these reading groups. 
and they kind of took over libraries and reading rooms and, and formed book clubs, which sounds kind of silly until you realize, you know, of course, how important propaganda is and kind of molding the minds of people to think the way that they want them to think. So you do see that pattern. It's all throughout these various secret societies, not every single one, but um, education seems to be a big thing. Yeah. And then you do notice, especially here in the United States with these great colleges comes great privilege. The people that go there are either, you know, particularly gifted and receive scholarships or they're families are wealthy enough to afford that kind of that kind of education and now more and more i notice just being near one of these campuses that you have a lot of international money coming in uh, a lot of international students particularly from asia there was this whole you know there was this whole i think it all went all the way up to the supreme court where they voted or uh, ruled that you know you can't use these sort of, I don't know how to describe it, but they were basically saying, you know, only a certain percentage of each race could come into the school because certain percentages of races were more intelligent than others and were you know better at getting these tests and they wanted to have an equal spread of, you know, diversity, right? And mm-hmm. who knows where that's going to get us. It's not really my focus with this question. There is a book that I found by an author named David Allen Richards, Skull and Keys, and he spends some time talking about how in the 70s, the sort of cultural changes affected the secret societies and they started letting in women and people of different racial backgrounds other than white, because historically these colleges just had white male students. So (laughs) they've made those adaptations and change, but on the point of Asia, it does seem like Skull and Bones has its sort of tendrils into Asia, specifically China, maybe even other places. We saw, you know, the opium wars being fought there and the people that helped found Skull and Bones at Yale had tons of money in those areas of opium trafficking. And so the connections are there. But I wonder, are there, you know, equivalent secret societies that you've researched, you know, in Asia and, you know, what's their role in all this? Because, you know, I'm sure the it's not just the West that has these, this sort of component to their political hierarchy. Well, I haven't really ran across that exactly, but I do. And I don't know a lot about this subject and I'd like to look into it deeper, but I will mention the uh, Swarsman scholarships. Now, Stephen A. Swartzman is, he's a Skull and Bones alumni, and he is the head of the Blackstone Group, which is a subsidiary or was a subsidiary of the Black Rock Group, of course. And, you know, Blackstone has been buying up rental properties like mad the last few years. So his Swartzman scholarships are supposed to be very similar to the Rhodes scholarships, except there is much more of an emphasis on getting Asian people to be in, giving giving them the scholarship. So I don't know what the deal is about that. I've just read a couple of articles, you know, and it could be that it's just maybe they are the ones who are making the grades or more interested in what, you know, he wants to the type of people he wants to put out there, but you know, him being skull and bones, I'm very suspicious, you know? Yeah. Well, on the point of Schwartzman, they named the 
geocentric position of the campus, Woolsey Hall, after him. It's now the Schwartzman Center, and wow. Woolsey Hall is inside of it. And yeah, it's like, you know, it's the exact center point of the campus. It's this big, round, you know, roof. I forget what the proper term or dome, obviously it's a dome, but there's a, a more accurate architectural term for it. And it's modeled after this place in Rome, actually. I found a similar picture of a building in Rome that's, I believe, in the Vatican. So one of the things I've been trying to research is like the symbology with the architecture at New Haven because, and specifically on Yale's campus, because there is so much to look at from what looks like Egyptian buildings, the secret society tombs and whatnot have the Greco-Egyptian look to them. And then the whole collegiate Gothic style with all the different grotesques. And I found Dr. Faust is one of the most prominent grotesques. It's one of the larger ones. So there's a whole Dr. Faust selling his soul or speaking with the devil on one of these buildings. And it, I mean, it goes on and on, but the most significant grotesques are the Yales. And what does that mean? Well, a Yale University, Yale is actually also another word or homonym for uh, this mythical creature that's seen on several different royal herald shields and whatnot over there in England. And it's also one of the queen's beasts. The queen, when she was alive, she had like these, like this hall of beasts where, you know, she had these like mythical beast statues, each representing a different part of England. And one of them is the Yale, which again, going back to that whole British sort of loyalty that Yale demonstrates, you know, it's no coincidence that you know, this place where these secret societies have reached such an infamous level, you know, there are secret societies at all these colleges, but none are as infamous yet as Yale. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, Yale itself is named after a mythical creature. I mean, that's not explicitly what it's named after, but they do acknowledge that the homonym is there with these, you know, basically what look like unicorns with two, two horns. Right. It's Mm. kind of an interesting animal. But anyways, on that note, when it comes to like these sort of overlapping connections and, you know, this nexus that is skull and bones, like what are some of the more significant events that skull and bones took part in? Can we get into a little bit of the history? Because I've looked into them a lot, but I haven't talked much about their role in events like World War One and World War Two, and you were just talking about how the Civil War had this sort of, you know, these Freemasons fighting each other. I, I'm sure there's more to that story, but what about Skull and Bones? Did they play any role in, in the Civil War or any other, you know, major events in the United States history? Well, you know, I have read, and which I thought was interesting, and we kind of alluded to this a second ago, but there were actually Skull and Bones members who fought in the Civil War and some fought on the you know, on the for the North and some fought for the South, which tells you how long that you know the group has been around. So I think that's was I thought that was pretty interesting. You know, you've got some really significant members. You know, we talked about Daniel Coit or no, we I guess we didn't. Daniel Coit Gilman was kind of credited for founding Johns Hopkins. You know, McGeorge Bundy was the president of the Ford Foundation, which the Ford Foundation 
uh, has worked with the CIA practically since its inception. So there's that. Henry Stimson was the Secretary of War under Franklin D. Roosevelt and also under Truman. And he was appointed to, I think he was every president except Harding from 1911 to 1946, according to um, Anthony C. Sutton. So that guy had a lot to do with a lot of different policies. I think that he was, some people say that he was actually the one to kind of talk the president into dropping the bomb on Japan. So, you know, that's a big thing there for sure. Another Skull and Bones guy, Robert Lovett, was Secretary of Defense. You know, you look at UNESCO, the organization that's a part of the UN, and I think it was headed up by Julian Huxley, you know, the famous uh, eugenicist who was brother to Aldous. And another Skull and Bones member wrote the Constitution, Archibald McLeish for UNESCO. Winston Lord, another Skull and Bones member, he was the count. Council on Foreign Relations, I think he was the leader, the uh, chairman, and he was also the ambassador to China. He was a secretary of state at one time. Timothy Dwight, he was the professor of Yale Divinity School and then went on to be the 12th president of Yale. Just so many of these guys went on to do so many interesting things. Jeremiah Wadsworth, he set up this group called the Peace Research Institute and it eventually became the Institute for Policy Studies. And it was long thought, I think, that it was a, some kind of communist outfit. I think it, I believe it finally broke up. A lot of these guys have been in, like, like a guy named Ralph Delahaye Payne. The Paynes were uh, one of the prominent families. Uh, he was the editor and publisher of Fortune magazine. Uh, Thomas Henry Goonsberg, he was uh, the president of Viking Press. They've had a bunch of ambassadors in Skull and Bones. Another guy, Franklin McVeigh, he was class of 1862. He was the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury under William Howard Taft, also a bonesman. Oddly enough, I've only been able to find one Rockefeller in Skull and Bones, and I guess they just really didn't even need it because they were so powerful already, but Percy Rockefeller, and he started a company called White Shoe, and he was a oil man, gun dealer. He, he delved into a lot of different things. Well, one thing that I found with the whole oil tycoon crowd is they really owe their their fortune to Yale in a lot of ways because Yale is the place where they first turned rock oil into petroleum they realized they could do that i'm sure others had performed that experience experiment in other places but they basically like streamlined it and made it efficient enough to you know create this incredible oil boom and all of these you know wealthy you know tycoons that came from that the sci the sheffield scientific school was eventually like kind of invaded that was a part of yale it was like a it was like a sister school or technical school next to yale where they would do like the more engineering science-based classes and eventually i don't know if it was anthony sutton or chris milligan writing about this but the Sheffield School is taken over by Skull and Bones in another way. Like they, they sort of invade it. And a lot of those secret societies that were a part of the Sheffield Scientific School were kind of 
built by Skull and Bones or like that whole network was like connected is basically what they're alluding to with the book. So, yeah, I wonder if, you know, just by being in the oil business, they were inherently connected to Skull and Bones and this whole network. I would imagine so, because it really does seem like there's all these, you know, all these organizations, you know, it's not like every single person has to have the um, same kind of goals, kind of speaking of like the foundations and different things like that. But if it's just a few people are connected and have similar goals or can help each other out to get what they want done, you know, I can see that really being a huge thing. And I think that really is the, I think that's one of the main things with like council on foreign relations, you know, these people get in there and half of them have already been in presidential administrations or been CEOs or in upper administration administration of like international businesses and if you know the other half are going into presidential administration so it's like a really i think it's for kind of crony capitalism kind of comes in you see the kind of public sector and private sector merge under these foundations and ngos and i kind of think that's maybe what they're kind of training the skull and bones members to do because it is that, you know, that's that senior year. They're getting you ready to go out into the world. And, and mostly most people either go into business or they become professors or deans of colleges. So it's like, they really are preparing people to go out and network and kind of get things done. Yeah, it definitely feels like uh, they're sort of stacking the deck in their favor by being in these places where the most brilliant people are kind of, you know, being tested for what they're worth. You know, you have some of the most brilliant teachers at these schools and so on and so forth. But it does seem over time that that whole structure is kind of degraded going back to what we were saying earlier about them invading the education system and even going back to the Fabians and how, uh, I don't think we mentioned this, but I heard in a, another interview I was listening to uh, that the Fabian Society had a sort of objective of degrading traditions, right? You mentioned this mm-hmm. before, but degrading you know traditions in any way possible. So, you know, we see that with like, you know, the school system, people being so focused on their identity and how, you know, they're perceived and all these very what seems like superficial, uh, you know, objectives. And I'm not, you know, I'm not against someone expressing themselves however they, they feel. But I don't know that while we have people starving and wars going on, that's the most pressing issue. And it seems to be what people are hitting the streets to, you know, demand their rights for. So not to get into the whole social justice warrior Marxism, but you can see where, you know, we're looking at a completely different America than we had in the 40s and 50s, 30s, 20s, when these guys were kind of in their heyday. Uh, Sure, there's a lot of bad things going on at that time, but as far as like the East Coast in America went, aside from the, you know, financial depression, I think there was still like tons of wealth here. And a lot of these people were unaffected by what was going on in the world. You know, you even have some skull and bones men during world war one going out with the British air force and basically just doing like bombing runs for fun, like just to, 
you know, America wasn't even in the war effort, but they were just like, oh yeah, let's go over there and shoot some Germans for fun with these planes. You know, it's like very uh, unattached. It's like they kind of live outside of the scope of the consequences of their actions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And you know, it's like, um, you know, with the kind of the legend that they stole or George H.W. Bush in particular stole Geronimo's skull from his grave, you know, and, and actually Geronimo's, one of his relatives actually sued Skull and Bones over that kind of thing. So a lot of these things that people would just, you know, the average person would say, that's just a conspiracy. These guys are very powerful. They've done all kinds of things. They've been more responsible for a lot of important things in history than most people will ever care to know. And it's not a conspiracy. It's, it's our history. You know, it really, the only way they've gotten away with it is because, you know, the media still pretends like it's conspiracy. You know, when we're talking about a media that won't even report on not Bohemian Grove, but well, that too, but Bilderberg, you know, they act like it's not even a, a big deal, you know, and it's like, what other time would all these world leaders and important people get together and the media not be, you know, watering at the mouth to try and report on it, but oh, they just act like it's nothing, you know? So, well, and I've heard a know, big the, reason why is because a lot of those media moguls are involved in that, right? Like they, the higher ups in those companies go to those things. So, you know, they, they could probably order you know, journalistic silence on those sort of events at that point, right? To come <laughs> all in the fold. And yeah, it definitely feels like the popularity of shows like this is really due in part to the fact that the media has been so corrupted over the past hundred or so years. I mean, not that it wasn't in when they had just newspapers and whatnot, there was tons of, what was it called? Yellow journalism back then. But aside from that, you know, and I wonder saying that, like if that was just a term they used to deride truthful journalism, the same way they use the term fake news to deride conspiracy theories and any alternative, you know, opinion, right? It, yeah. it definitely seems like the modicum of control demands having information supremacy, right? Having the final say, right? Who's the authority? And maybe that's why they needed to wrap up the education system so tightly back then, because that's where people were getting their information outside of the church. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's so important. I mean, people just, you know, we talk about propaganda all the time, but it is so very important for the people in power to kind of keep the thoughts of the people like kind of in a, a bubble, you know, you've got two bubbles basically, but they don't want you to get outside those two bubbles, you know, and we're so, you know, obviously so divided now that I always say, you know, like the president really controls two sides because, you know, however, he presents himself. One side's going to be like, yes, we love him. He's the greatest thing ever. And the other side's like, I hate him. You know, we got to get rid of him. So really anything he says, especially one who's coherent like Trump, you know, he had both sides in his hands and that's very dangerous because on one hand, he, you know, there were more people kind of to kind of understand that yes, government is corrupt, but you also need a public that can think clearly and independently as well. So yeah, it's propaganda is very important. Absolutely. Now on that note, have you 
run into any like secret societies among journalists or among like the media? Do you think these people just they go to the usual suspects or do you think they have some sort of inner group themselves like that they co, you know, cohort with each other in? That's a great question. I do wonder that, you know, a few years ago, probably like a decade or more, there was something called the journalists. And I think they found out that there were all these like big name journalists had this, I don't know if it's like a chat room or just like an email, you know, like a list, like a mass email list or something like that. But these guys were going back and forth talking about all kinds of things. And I think somebody started screenshotting it or you know, making notes of it or whatever, and it came out. And so these were guys from all the big news, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS, those things, and that got out. So it makes me wonder if there's not been certain things like that in the past. And I'm sure there's been a lot of you know, journalists that have been Masons, I would say. But, you know, at one point, it was almost like strange if you weren't in a Masonic group. So I don't know how you know, how much of an influence that has had. I know like going way back, you know, Cecil Rhodes biographer, W.T. Stead, he was supposed to be known as like the first kind of like sensationalist. And he was connected with Annie Bizant, who was in the Fabian Society, but had also taken over for uh, Helena Blavatsky in the Theosophical Society. So it's kind of interesting how you do see from time to time these newspaper guys being pretty um, influential outside of just being journalists. Um, I look a lot into the history of Zionism and stuff like that. And you look at like Theodore Herzl, Vladimir Jabotinsky, I believe I'm leaving out somebody, but anyway, three of the main leaders were newspaper men. So it might've been Haim Weisman. I can't remember now, but anyway, it's just like you start noticing wow, these guys were very influential and, you know, that's probably not, you know, it's not a coincidence, I wouldn't think. Yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff. Uh, I've had Michael Hoffman on the podcast twice and, you know, some of his books cover those topics, Zionism, and, you know, he's definitely mischaracterized often because of that. I think one example of a, maybe like a maybe not a secret society, but an arm of this sort of sort of force in society is like the ADL and other groups like that label people who, you know, maybe have uh, uh, written or uh, I don't, I don't want to say opinion because a lot of it is just research, you know, but they, mm. they basically make these guys out to be racist when they're just reporting on things that they've found it's a sketchy territory for sure too. Cause then you have some actual people who are, you know, maybe in, you know, racist groups that are trying to covertly push some sort of agenda. I, I tend to think that's the minority and the majority mm -hmm. of it is honest, you know, people who are, who are just sort of, uh, you know, trying to get the truth out there. But how often do you come across like maybe racially motivated or hate based uh, secret societies? Are there many of those out there? I mean, maybe like in the same sort of world as like gangs and whatnot, because a gang could be considered a secret society by all intensive purposes. But have you looked into those sorts of groups at all? No, not really outside of, you know, the KKK, which I haven't delved into very much, just kind of looked at their earlier Masonic connections. But yeah, I kind of tend to believe 
kind of believe like you because, I mean, here I live in the heart of the South and it's very seldom that I ever see anyone even say anything racist anymore, you know, and I've seen that change. I'm almost 50 now. So I, I do remember when older people were more, you know, they were more racist and it wasn't even that the, all of them were exactly racist, but it was just kind of like the way they were brought up and oh, stuff yeah. like that. I tried to tell my grandmother the other night that we got Thai food and she said, what do you mean? Chinese food? I'm like, no, Thai food. And she's like, it's all the same. And I'm like, no, Mamey, like <laughs> you can't say that, you know, but she's, you know, 90 years old. There's no teaching yeah. her the difference between Chinese food and Thai food. Right. So right, right. I totally understand. I think that's what a lot of it is really. Obviously there are these, you know, fringe sort of extreme examples but when it comes to groups like Skull and Bones, they certainly have a, a racially motivated sort of bias, at least in the past. I mean, obviously that thing was more commonplace back then. But, you know, when you look at the roster of people that they were accepting into Skull and Bones at a certain point in history, it was only people from a certain pedigree, like religious and racial Right. They only wanted what we call here in New England wasps. I don't know how far that term has gone, but white yeah, yeah. Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Right. And that seems to be, you know, something that, you know, I find very curious, you know, considering like all the connections to Israel, too. Right. And there's a whole connection with Israel and England and how England basically just kind of created that country. So, I mean, help me kind of sort of, I don't know, find the, the meat here because it does feel like a lot of theories get thrown at Israel, Zionism, and like, what's your understanding of that whole topic? Well, I've done 10 shows called, it's a series, it's called Those We Don't Speak Of. And a few years ago, when my grandmother's passed away, I never really grew up around her. So we found out after she passed away, I mean, I never really knew my dad's family that well, but I found a long, long lost brother and we were looking into our kind of heritage or whatever. And we found out that grandmother was Jewish. So they kind of got me to looking more into it, you know? So anyway, long story short, I've kind of developed a real fascination with the history. And I mean, it's a huge subject. It's so much more complicated than, you know, than most people think, but Basically, I think that there you had, as far as the people who kind of started the modern state there, the Zionists, those people were mostly European, Ashkenazi. They were mostly non-religious at the time. And they, it was kind of like this elite group, basically. And they wanted to start the state to get back over to Palestine. And that was like their main goal. I mean, that was it no matter what. And so they were even turning down, sounds insane, but it, I've read this from, and I could tell people great authors if they want to read their books, most of these authors are Jewish. So it's not like some racist, you know, guy is writing this stuff. They would turn down offers from England and the United States to let refugees come in because they said, no, we want them to go to Palestine because if they go to these other places, it, it will hurt our efforts to establish that state. And what a lot of people don't realize is they had a, they came up with a motto. They were great marketers. It was a, a nation for a people, 
or hundreds of, is that how it goes, people? Nation for a people. I can't remember now exactly, but it was basically like a, a place for a people and the people, a people without a place. Basically, I'm paraphrasing, sorry. But anyway, at the time, there was actually almost 900,000 Arabs that lived there. So they were trying to portray that there was nobody that lived there, like it was just like an abandoned desert. So there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on there. But uh, really the first people or the first person uh, or group to kind of uh, be responsible for starting to move a mass amount of Jews to Palestine was the Rothschilds. They established they started buying land from absent Ottoman Turks and they kind of, at that, point, at that time, it was all Arabs working the lands. Basically, that's all they had to do was farm for the most part. And they took it over and then they would send, you know, Jews over there to work the land. And so it just kind of, they started gathering more and more property as things went on. But yeah, there was definitely, you know, the, the Brits, they had a hand in it because they thought, okay, if we can control Palestine, that is the home to three Abrahamic religions. And that will allow us to kind of work over all three of these, the masses of these religions, they kind of have their way with them. And they thought they could kind of maintain that power somehow to kind of make peace between. And at the time, really, there wasn't very much animosity between the Arabs and the Jews. There was only like maybe 8% of Jews who lived there. It was the rest Palestine or Palestinians or Arabs rather. And, you know, something like 3% Christians. That was about it. But anyway, long story short, you know, once the Arabs started to realize, hey, they're trying to move us out and and move these other people in, that's when the tension started, you know, coming and, and it just got worse. And, you know, like it would take a whole nother show to kind of explain everything, but yeah. I, well, and I would like to have you back on and do that because it is something I, I haven't really looked into that deeply and I would like to. And, you know, I, I would imagine that would cause a lot of problems in a place that had already been invaded, you know, so many times the whole history of the Crusades. And there's a whole yeah. conversation to be had about how the Crusades, you know, and the Knights Templar and how that secret society went on to influence other groups and maybe even had some influence over England at the time when they did the, you know, what would we call it, the Fifth Crusade or would it be the Fourth Crusade at that point, right? So, yeah, and, you know, Israel is pretty young as far as countries Mm. goes, right? I remember one of the first books I saw when I was in the library was like, the Suez War and how there's like all these wars going on in the Middle East. And I don't know what drew me to that at such a young age, but on a totally different tangent, there seems to be, you know, this overlap where you mentioned Basant before with the occult and secret societies and this sort of nefarious criminal underground that was going on here in America. One example of this is Houdini and how he kind of got Maybe scammed isn't the right word. The people who quote unquote scammed him seemed like they were innocent enough. But Arthur Conan Doyle and his wife invited Houdini to a seance. Arthur Conan Doyle's wife sort of started, you know, reciting some crap that Houdini got really upset about because they were telling him, oh, yeah, we're going to channel your your deceased mother and 
you know, they start speaking in a British accent and he's like, you know, my mother was from Eastern Europe. Like, what the hell is this crap? You know? And he, he got so upset and went on this whole crusade against the spiritualists. And he, some people think he was eventually murdered by them. Cause there's this uh, event where a guy comes in and says, Hey, Houdini, I hear that, you know, you can take uh, a blow from any man. And Houdini says, well, yeah, that's true. And the guy just starts punching him in the back and in the stomach and all this, you know, he basically just starts beating him up and Houdini says, get out of here, get out of here, stop, you know? And, uh, he died from like complications sometime after that. And the whole myth is, oh, he died doing some kind of trick that he couldn't finish or he couldn't get out of. And that's really not true. And I wonder if the spiritualist had something to do with it, because that guy who beat him up allegedly was a spiritualist. And yeah, I mean, it's, there's just a whole series of weird connections with those spiritualists. You mentioned Annie Besant and her friendships. But yeah. I don't know. I mean, when it comes to that point in American history, were there any other weird groups that you've researched? Maybe the spiritualists? Have you looked into them at all? Not very much. I have read a little bit from a couple different authors, kind of the other side of Blavatsky. One guy was Rene Guénon. I think he was a French occultist, if I remember correctly. And then forget the other one's name. But anyway, they kind of did these exposures of Blavatsky and they talked about her early work kind of even before she kind of created the Theosophical Society and claimed that she was a fraud. And, you know, she had been ran out of India and in certain places because she'd been caught trying to kind of fake these seances and different things like that. But other than that, I really haven't read too much about that. I know it was very popular you know, in England and in the U.S. as well, very popular. And it's really, I'm sure you, you probably know better than I, but the Theosophical Society was extremely popular. You know, when you start looking at people who were in it, it's pretty amazing, you know, and you don't even hear much about it anymore. I guess it's kind of went underground now, but pretty amazing at that time. You had all these groups, you know, the Masons were still huge at that time and all these groups working especially, you know, near the, the late 1800s, there was some kind of res resurgence of these spiritualists and uh, occult beliefs and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating, man. Really weird stuff with the theosophists. And I think there's plenty of rabbit holes that I've yet to go down in that realm, but I'd love to have you back on to talk more about secret societies. Is there anything we left off the table that you want to mention before we start to wrap up here? Yeah, I will mention one thing, semi-connected. Well, it's definitely connected to the overall theme, but when I was doing a show on Skull and Bones, I think the last show, and you may be somewhat familiar with this too, but I think it was the book that you had mentioned there that you had, Scroll, is it Skulls and Keys, I think. But it talks in there about one of the other fraternities that I had never heard of at Yale, and it was called Eliza, and Eliza is now called Sabtai or Shabtai, which means seven or Saturn. And it was actually founded by a guy named Rabbi Smuley Hecht, another guy named Ben Karp, Michael Alexander, and a guy named Cory Booker, who many people know who Cory Booker is. 
I had no idea, but it, and it's, so it's a Jewish fraternity at Yale and it's, this is an article from time that I was able to find. It says Shabtai, and a lot of, I don't know if people know this, some of your listeners will be familiar, but Shabtai's V was, he was a Jewish Messiah. Half the world's Jews followed him in the year 1666. And he turned out, of course, to be not a real Messiah and ended up becoming a Muslim in a lot of Jews had really left everything to follow this guy. It's a pretty amazing story. But anyway, it says Shabtai has deep connections to Israeli political, military, judicial figures, and hosts regular off-the-record meetings and briefings on Israeli developments. Participants, many of whom have also been speakers and guests at Shabtai, include I'm not sure. I know a couple of these guys have been Israeli uh, politicians. Aaron, Barack, uh, Elikim, Rubenstein. I don't think most people will be familiar with these people, but they are, like I said, they're known in Israel. So anyway, and this, I thought that was interesting. It's, it says international Jewish leaders meet regularly with uh, Shabtai members to inspire their participation and receive their guidance on critical issues facing global Jewry. It says these have included Aiden Steinsaltz, I believe Steinsaltz may be one of the writers of, I think he's transcribed the uh, Talmud, if I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, I thought that was interesting. Most people won't be familiar with these other people, but yeah, so Cory Booker is probably the best well-known alumni of this Shabtai fraternity. Wow. I never heard of them before, but it sounds like they're a pretty big deal. Yeah, I didn't know Cory Booker went to school in New Haven. That's interesting. And on that note, Saturn, Shabtai, Saturn is, you could read into Saturn having some sort of presence in New Haven. New Haven's known as the Elm City. Elm trees are famously like associated with Saturn. When you look into like Celtic lore and all these other, you know, sort of, I'm, some of it's new age, but a lot of times you'll see like trees being associated with different planets and Saturn is always associated with the Elm tree. New Haven's the Elm City. Another thing is New Haven was founded around nine squares, nine sort of city blocks, right? And nine squares, that nine, three by three grid is mathematically, uh, symbolically connected to Saturn, right? Each planet has its own sort of grid. This is a part of, uh, I believe it's part of the Kabbalah. Um, I found a book recently that talks all about it. I want to dive into that on a uh, Patreon sec segment, but I'd love to have you back on to get into Zionism further and even the Fabian Society. I know you've done tons of stuff on those groups, a 10 series or 10 episode series on both of those and even Skull and Bones. I'm working on this sort of podcast documentary series. It's you know, long time coming. I'm going to put out the second episode. The first episode is already out for supporters only, but I'm put, going to put the second episode out very soon on Columbus Day because, well, now it's Indigenous Peoples Day, but the second episode deals with like the pre-Columbian history of America leading up to the colonial period, which then eventually will you know, we'll get into skull and bones and, but I want to lay the background first. So I'd love to have you on uh, an episode in the future to talk about that as well, maybe as an addition to that series, but odd man, tell the folks where they can follow up with you, maybe where they can go and check out those 10 part series that you have on the various groups and all of your work. I mean, we've, 
really run the gamut today here. It kind of reminds me of one of the books that I have on the shelf, which is kind of like a glossary of secret societies. We kind of did that today with the podcast. Yeah, man, I would be glad to come on anytime. Thank you for having me. Yeah, if people want to follow me on social media, it's uh, underscore the odd man out on Twitter and Instagram. I don't, I haven't been doing Twitter that much, but I'm going to start back soon. But yeah, in the profiles, you'll find a link tree and it's got all my other stuff. My show is called The Oddcast featuring The Odd Man Out. And so if you go The Oddcast FT, The Odd Man Out, you'll find it. It's on Podbean. It's on, if you want to go to alternatecurrentradio.com, it's on there as well. So yeah, man, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Awesome. And I will link that in the description for people so they can easily go and subscribe and follow up with the Oddcast because it is a great show and you cover tons of ground on that awesome podcast. So thank you so much, brother, for joining me here. And uh, yeah, until next time, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. All right. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. That was our conversation with the odd man out, of course, from the odd cast. Be sure to go and follow that wherever you listen to podcasts. I had a great conversation with odd man, although one correction, and I'm sure this was a mistake, um, but it was Prescott Bush that took Geronimo's skull from his grave, not George H.W. Bush. So um, at least that's what the story says, allegedly. And Odd Man said it was George H.W. Bush. So uh, incorrect. Just wanted to clear the air there because that's something that I've talked about a ton. So it is a little bit of, uh, I don't know, um, close to home, I guess. Maybe there's a better phrase I could use there. But anyways, great conversation with Odd Man, and I hope this maybe balances out the Christian um, perspective that we got pretty heavy in the past couple episodes. Not that I'm against that, not that I think we had too much of it, but I just want to have a nice even spread and balance things out and not alienate people. I know the Christians in the audience always appreciate when we have Uh, those sorts of guests on and they're usually very supportive Uh, they tend to be uh, very vocal about you know oh I love this episode so that's always great to see but I I don't want to fall into the trap of thinking oh well I better do more of those episodes uh, just to appease the kind people who like to hear that kind of stuff because we need to be challenged we need to be uh, open-minded to all sorts of theories and You know, I've heard that when you're challenged, it can only strengthen your faith if you have the correct resolve and uh, receive the information properly. You know, you don't have to let it go in one ear and out the other, but you also don't have to change your whole life at the turn of a hat because of uh, something somebody said on a podcast. So anyways... A lot of interesting stuff going on. Also, we had a controversial, super controversial episode uh, with JFK. Some people were very upset that I didn't push back. That's not really my role as a host. I like to interview guests, hear out their perspective, 
And, you know, if they want to go and do some sort of debate with people who have different theories about JFK, you know, that's just something for a different show. I'm happy to have other guests on who have different theories about what happened in JFK. But, uh, yeah, I just thought that was a new and unique, fresh theory that I hadn't heard before. Although some friends that I spoke to said that they have seen that theory in other places. Not saying that Jay and Ryder didn't come up with that on their own or put it together on their own, rather. Uh, but I do think that, you know, it could have existed, right, as, as these things do. I mean, millions of people saw that event. And over the past 60 years, many of them have come up with their own thoughts on what could have happened and honestly if you haven't seen the film yet i think it's worth the dollar or two that it costs to rent the film on amazon or purchase it just to keep it on your computer you can download it just in case amazon ever decides to censor it you never know you never know maybe they uh release those jfk files and then they have a whole wipe of the internet and they just confirm what the warren report said i mean who knows they you know, everybody's hoping for these JFK reports, but I mean, who, who, you know, who put that information in those files? I'm pretty sure the government did. So, you know, Trump was like, oh, well, we're going to release the JFK files. And, you know, people say, oh, he never did it. More broken promises, whatever. I believe in Trump. I think Trump could make this country great again. Uh, but that's only because I care about <laughs> the economy being what it was four years ago. I mean, that seems a little, uh, you know, one-dimensional, if you ask me. I'm really anti-political when it comes to rooting or voting for certain politicians. You know, I can see that Trump is no different than any other politician, although he may be, you know, on the other side of the bird different wing of the same bird or you know different hand of the same hidden agenda who knows i just think that uh politics really isn't my thing i don't know oh jfk yeah so jfk you know who knows maybe they'll wipe this kind of information if they put out those jfk files because it'll just be a confirmation of this same uh you know basically bullshit that they've been putting out there for 60 years so anyways enough about that leave us a five-star rating and review if you like this show or any show you've heard in the past because some people don't understand how the five-star rating and reviews work and they're rating individual episodes so that's unfortunate but the way we can get around that and help the show grow is by leaving a five-star rating and review or updating your five-star rating and review if you've already left one and uh yeah i will read anyone's uh, kind messages as long as it's five stars i will read it here on the show so let's go ahead and do that because i think there was one uh one or two new reviews all right so we've got some new reviews forgive me maybe i've read these before but i'm pretty sure the last one i read was from um george in japan and before that uh okay and before that there was a slightly rude uh <laughs> review for five stars but I, I don't know if i read that or not 
So we got some new five-star reviews. Thanks, Mark. Five stars. Content is informative and entertaining. I use this at work to help get through my day and grow knowledge of the veil of our world that would otherwise be exposed. That wouldn't otherwise be exposed. Thanks, Mark. Keep waking everyone up. Awesome. I'm glad you think so. I hope I am. Uh, that's from Dot Subi13. Uh, bootstrappers likes to update his review a lot and i appreciate you for leaving us five stars this time he says good job dot 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 thank you bootstrappers i appreciate you even if you've left some uh, mean reviews in the past i've been there i know how it is i've done the same thing to podcasts that i love so shout out to you for sticking with us uh great show five stars episode 330 is a banger Thank you, Dirt Metal. And uh, yeah, the next review is also about episode 330, which, like I said, was controversial. So don't leave us a five-star rating or review. Tell us what you thought of episode 330 or this episode, episode 332, or the last episode, episode 331. Or just stick with what the reviews are intended as, which is a review of the entire podcast. So take that into consideration as well but anyways enough about that i want to give a shout out to our new patrons shout out to you guys and i used to give out spirit animal names maybe we'll do uh something like that coming up because i want to get everyone together for a patreon supporters only Substack included uh, zoom party which will be fun also, we need to get up to that 250 patron goal to start putting out in-person interviews, which I do hope we can reach that goal soon because it'd be nice to do those in-person interviews before it starts to snow. Either way, I will make it happen. Um, and yeah, we got some new content on the Patreon. Juan and I just started doing a new show every Monday, and you can follow up with that live or listen to the audio or watch the video afterwards all of that will be available on the patreon and the Substack. and uh, don't worry folks i will make sure it's all there and available so you can stream and watch it live at 5 p.m eastern time every monday uh, you can hear the most recent two episodes uh, along with a new episode if you're hearing this now uh, there should be a new completely new episode on the patreon so go and sign up now and check out that new episode and check out the bonus content and uh yeah let's give some shout outs to all of the great folks who are supporting us some people of course left the patreon in the last month that happens if that was you just make sure check your credit card or your debit card or whatever make sure you got enough money and sign back up it happens no big deal uh, but we want to give a shout out to Kristen and Andrew, which I think I gave them a shout out on the last episode. So maybe we haven't had any new patrons sign up. How disappointing. All right, whatever. No big deal. Maybe you'll sign up after listening to this. Also on my Substack, I'm going to be putting out a article about the song Californication. I saw a TikTok video that everybody was sharing yesterday that inspired me to go 
a little bit deeper because they made some really interesting points uh, in that TikTok. And I've heard that song a million times. So, you know, it wasn't my first time hearing it, but I definitely didn't think about it in that context until then. So if you want to hear my thoughts or read the th- my thoughts on that, go and check out the Substack. I also talked about it with Juan on our show that we did yesterday. Uh, well, Monday, this past Monday. So, yeah, that's that. Thanks, folks. Really appreciate it. And uh, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. MFTIC. Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface They want you confused like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki Stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body DNA fractal, the universe within me Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati Puppet masters know the power of the mantra Repeating mad lies till it has enough effect on ya Subliminal messages hijack your perception Tricking the population with holographic projections We see through it The system is unraveling I'm astral traveling Through the library of the Vatican On a sacred journey I embark with the squad Forever spitting truth Like Mark on the pod Gotta know the facts Never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up In the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society. You don't even know how powerful you are. We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade. I awoke in a deep underground military base. Zero recollection of how I got to this place. Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders must have been extracted when they crashed into us. Animal hybrids contained in the cages. A lion with the eagle head, monkeys with reptilian bases Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit All of a sudden the wall flickers away Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft, my getaway I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out, rob him for his plasma gun Hop in the ship, take the controls They highly intuitive, I figure it out easily Lift off, accelerate through a tunnel until I see the light Fly into the sky, get flanked by six F-35s Gotta know the facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers, searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade